Thank you, Steve and ladies. That was beautiful. Good morning, West Bowles Community Church. How are you? Good. Feel like Christmas out there this morning? Yeah, we haven't had such cold weather yet, have we? So it's the feel like Christmas. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. As you're finding Mark 15, um, I, can we talk a minute just as family? Is that cool? Can we talk? Um, and sometimes family risks things with one another. Yes? It's like, uh-oh, what's he going to say? Um, it, it, it got a hold of me last night during the Colorado Christmas when I looked out and saw empty seats. Now, I know the weather is partly responsible. And then um, it got a hold of me again this morning when someone told me that we have plenty of seats yet available for tonight and all our uh, other performances, including next week, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Some of us, all of us, I hope, continue to pray always that God would give us opportunities to share with others the story of God and of Jesus. I mean, how many of you pray for that opportunity? Yeah, now that I've told you, you all should, right? You're pressured into it. I don't mean to do that to you, but I've seen people come to me and say, oh, you know, I look for I really don't have a chance. And, you know, I've used that excuse, too. It's like, well, you know, I, here I am, like no one like knocks on my door and says, tell me about Jesus. We have been given by God an amazing opportunity to get literally the capital W word, Jesus Christ, out. And I'm concerned that we're going to miss it. Partly, at least. I mean, here are two tickets to a performance that's not yet sold out. None of the four remaining ones are. And it's our, we're given an opportunity to take these tickets and turn them into people. To take an empty seat and turn it into people. Now, I am truly the last one, and I'm very uncomfortable here this morning, even though we're just talking as family and you told me I could. <laughs> that uh, somehow some of you are going to feel guilted into doing this. I'm not going after guilt here. Here's why I'm doing this. I know because I have experienced you this last year and a half, almost two years, wow, how loving you are. I know you love God, and I know you love others. I've seen it. I've felt it. And I don't know, maybe because of the weather, maybe because we procrastinate, maybe we just don't know. I'm thinking... Here's an opportunity for how you can love God and love others. A big, fat opportunity. One of the easiest ways you could ever share your testimony in faith. It's like falling out of bed. Well, it might hurt your head a little bit when you hit the floor, but witnessing isn't supposed to be painless, right? I mean, and we can't... You know what I'm going to do? Front Range Christian, where I teach, gave me my Christmas bonus this year. It's $50. On my way out, I'm going to take my Christmas bonus. I'm going to turn them into tickets. I'm going to walk across the street. Maybe one reason I'm so convicted this morning is I'm guilty of it too. I'm going to walk across the street and I'm going to ask our neighbors if they'll join us at the show tonight or Friday or Saturday or Sunday. And if they say no, um, I haven't told Ben, Danny, and Peter this yet, but if they say no, then I'm going to take those tickets and my family and I are going to put our Santa Claus hats on and we're going to go to Walmart. I'm almost hoping they say no, because this kind of sounds like fun. If you're at Walmart this afternoon and you see, you know, five people in their Santa hats, and we're going to go around, we're going to look for a family, and we're going to have tickets. We're going to step out in faith and put the money down first. There's an idea. And we're going to go and say, hey, there's this big white building. Can't miss it just down the road from where we are here at the Super Walmart. It's an amazing show tonight. It's a Christmas show. Would you join us there? If you don't want to sit with us, would you just come? You know, if you're not going to use them, don't take them. But, no, if it's something that you would like, would you? And if they say no, as God is my witness, we'll stay there until someone takes those tickets. I'm asking this afternoon, can you make that call? Can you make that walk across the street? This week, would you do that Friday and Saturday, Sunday, because of your great love that I know you have for God and others, so we can get the word out? Would you do that, please? Amen? Okay, is that a little too heavy or is that all right? 
You'll still listen to what I have to say about Mark? Okay. I guess I could have preached an entire sermon on getting people here for the show. Maybe I just did. Sorry. Um, your Bibles are open to Mark 15. For um, Christmas this year, as you know, if you were here with us last week, over the course of the four Sundays of Advent, we are opening another very precious Christmas gift that God gave all of us. He gave us not only one, not two, but He gave us the gift of four Gospels. Four stories of the life and ministry of Jesus. I suggested to you last week that one of the reasons at least we have four Gospels is because God wants us to have four points of view into the story of Jesus. Four same but different points of view from four different authors. Four different sermons, if you will. The Gospels are a whole lot like sermons of these authors. Four different takes. Four different emphases into Jesus, what he's like, what he's about, you know, and even who he is. And so last week we looked at Matthew's gospel and we saw how Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the righteous teacher, the teacher, perfect and blameless, who not only talks about, not only teaches about loving God with all his heart, all his soul and all his might, he not only teaches and talks about loving others, But he's the teacher who also does it. He leads by example. The best teachers ever. Yes. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Mark's gospel. And we'll ask the same question that we did of Matthew. What might Mark, in Mark's gospel, be especially trying to emphasize about Jesus? What what jumps out from Mark's gospel, perhaps, That's not as obvious or not as central, at least, in the other three. According to Mark, is there something special, especially special, about this Jesus, according to Mark, whose birth that we celebrate in two weeks? Who is he? And like the other Gospels, one place we'll begin, one clue to what Mark is up to can be seen in how he organizes his material. Very simple outline of Mark you see on the screen He divides his work in two, almost to the word, at least in the original Greek. Certainly to the chapter. First eight chapters, Mark highlights, his tendency is to highlight, he packs together the stories of the successful, amazing ministry of Jesus. And his miracles are collected and emphasized, short and quick hits of the power of God, the power of God supernatural signs, miracles, mighty deeds, great successes in eight chapters, especially clustered. In short, you might say Mark showcases Jesus' divine nature in chapters 1 through 8. His glory, the glory of God, is seen clearly in who this Jesus is. It is pushed to the fore. And in the final eight chapters, something shifts. And it turns on Peter's declaration and confession that Jesus is Messiah in chapter 8, 29. We'll look at that a little bit later. And as soon as Peter realizes through the signs and wonders and divine nature, this is Messiah, all of a sudden on that declaration, a hinge comes around for the second half of Mark. And in the second half of Mark, suddenly Jesus is emphasized more in his human nature, his humanity. He struggles. He has a hard time. People come against him. They resist him more. It's angry. It's lethal. They don't want to hear it. His teaching, and including especially, of course, his suffering and death. Mark brings the fact that Jesus is a human being and suffers and, in fact, dies to the fore. So one emphasis, at least in Mark, and there are others, one emphasis, it seems, even from the very structure of Mark, is that Jesus is suffering Messiah. And we hear that suffering Messiah, or as the prophet Isaiah might say, suffering servant. And maybe to us, something like suffering Messiah doesn't sound like an oxymoron. Because we're here after the story. We know already. That Jesus came to die. But 
it's hard for us to fully appreciate that the shock, what a shocking impact that the cross had in Jesus' day. The people in Jesus' day, at least the ones who were expecting the Messiah, the religious among them, those who followed God, at least those that were depending and hoping on God's promise to send Messiah, they didn't in their wildest dreams. I mean, their expectation for Messiah was, boy, I, I can't wait for the Messiah to come so his enemies can overcome him and he'll die. <laughs> I mean, to the contrary, when Messiah came, we win, for heaven's sake. Forever and finally. When Messiah comes, David's heir literally reclaims the throne of not only Israel but the world. Rome, disgusting Rome, and all of its pagan practices, and all of Israel's enemies, they're defeated and destroyed forever. That's Messiah in Jesus' day. And it's against that expectation that these first century followers of Jesus walked down the road and proclaimed Jesus is Messiah. You have to empathize a bit with the people that first heard that message. The reaction must have been something like, Messiah? But he suffered and died at the hands of his enemies. Yes, I, I know, you tell me he rose again from the dead, but then he left? And Rome is still large and in charge? I mean, I may have been born at night, but not last night. Say what? He's Messiah? The message that the Messiah suffered and died, the message that the Messiah suffered and died and then left with Rome still with its boot on the neck of Israel, that's a radical shift from what they expected. And so Mark, probably the first gospel written, most scholars agree. There's a strong minority that wants to place Matthew first. And so Mark, if he's first out of the chute, he takes dead aim at one of these, if not the key hurdle, into believing that Jesus is Messiah. I suggest to you later it's a key hurdle for us too. Mark addresses right out of the chute what some scholars have called the offense of the cross. Mark writes to answer the question, what do you mean the Messiah suffered and died? The Messiah doesn't suffer and die at the hands of his enemies, okay? The Messiah triumphs over his enemies. And there's very good texts in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to stand on behind that conviction. What do you mean the Messiah suffered and died? And, and now he's in heaven? How can that be? Rome's still here. And so Mark, Mark takes a... He takes on Mission Impossible, to borrow a phrase from the Colorado Christmas. If you want to know what that means, you'll have to come. Where'd they go? Put these right here. Buy your tickets. Mark takes on something just amazing. Can you imagine? This is your job now as Mark the Gospel writer. You need to show, you need to prove in what you write and how you present this Jesus Messiah guy who died and left... You need to convince people who thought that when he would come, earth would be perfect immediately. You need to tell them that despite the fact that he was killed by his enemies and now left, you, may, you have to show that he is Messiah not only despite him dying, but you have to show that he's Messiah because he suffered and died. You want to do that? I mean, Mark, Mark writes... He writes to show how Jesus' suffering death doesn't weaken the claim that He is Messiah. It, in fact, strengthens and proves that Jesus is Messiah. Now, how in the world would you do that? How is Mark going to do that? How is Mark going to convince people that the Messiah came to suffer and die? How is he going to convince them that in the suffering and dying part, especially, if but for the suffering and dying part, he's not the Son of God? How is he going to show that the suffering and dying part, that's what proves that he is the one and only Son of God? 
Your Bibles are open, hopefully, to Mark 15. I've asked you to turn there because I know of no greater example in Mark that shows where Mark shows that Jesus' suffering and death is that proof that He is Messiah. How does He do it? He does it certainly by telling the story of the crucifixion, but He does it as well in the way He tells the story of the crucifixion. The details that Mark decides to include are interesting, fascinating. Before we look directly at the text in Mark 15, We need one more historical contextual piece to cover. And for this, I'm going to need your help. I need three adults, and I need two teens. So I'm not going to pick three adults if you feel moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay, three adults. Come on up. Come on. The first three adults and two teens to come on up. I won't make you... All right, now I got six. That's okay, I can have six. Okay, you guys stand in the line right over here, please. That's okay, come on in, we can use you. Okay. Uh, notes and sermon for next time. West Bulls community congregation cannot count. Write that down, okay. <laughs> All right, now, I'm going to take Chris because he's the tallest. Chris, Chris, you are going to be... No, stay where you are. I didn't tell you. Come over here. You can be replaced. Okay, Chris is Caesar. So we'll call him, we'll call him Caesar Christus. Try that. Yeah, try that five times fast. You'll never, Caesar Christus. So Chris is Caesar, okay? Now I need, I need two senators... Okay, senators in Jesus' day would have been men, so we'll have the two other men up here be senators. Okay, now, you're going to get this, okay, this. Okay, no, no, I didn't tell you to do anything with it, just hold it. Okay, okay, and then you get this one too. Can you, don't show anybody what it says, okay? They want to see, but don't show them, okay. And then you get this, Okay. And then, let's see, I need, uh, two more of you need to have, have props. Who wants to be the next one? Okay, Danny, I saw your, okay. You're going to be executioner. Okay. So here is, now, let's be solemn about this, okay. This is, so maybe you hold it like this as you, okay. You got that? Okay, don't, don't hit your brother with that, Okay. Okay, I think that's it. All right. Now, let's see. Oh, I need one more thing. Okay, Taylor, we'll let you do this because it's, it, it's good. Taylor is going to be our sacrificial bull. Okay? So, <laughs> what you've always wanted to be, sacrificial bull. Now, ladies on the end, you'll just be sort of part of Caesar Christus's entourage. Okay? Thank you, George. Okay, now. The rest of you, I need about 200 of you, at least 200 of you, you're not coming up here, at least to to be Roman soldiers who are members of the Roman Imperial Guard. These are the staunchest legionnaires who have been assigned for Caesar's protection himself. So let's make these two front sections, raise your hand, this one here, you are the Royal Imperial Imperial Guard, okay? Now, the rest of us, the rest of you, you all be regular citizens of Rome, Okay, regular citizens of Rome, wait. Good. Now, let's say that Caesar wants to honor himself. Go figure. And maybe, like Gaius Caligula in the first century, like Nero, like Domitian, three real live Caesars that were, maybe Caesar even wants to declare himself a god. Many Caesars did that. Constantly. Now, how would, in first century, how would Caesar go about honoring himself and declaring himself all-powerful king and even a god? Here's the answer from a collection of histories. He would declare that a ceremony take place. He would have the Senate pass a decree, 
a decree that a ceremony would take place called the Roman Triumph. It's a ceremony that Caesar would call to take place if he wanted to honor himself. Okay? Now, what we're going to do this morning with this group of fine actors here is we are going to reenact... Did I lose one? Oh, she did. She... Ah, see? Okay. We're going to reenact an actual Roman triumph, okay, that the people in Jesus' day would know very well. That's key. It's a Roman triumph that would have occurred at the time and would have been well known at the time that Mark wrote chapter 15 or his entire gospel. That's important. Okay, do you understand what we're doing? This is an actual best guess at what a Roman triumph would look like. It comes from a various collection of historical resources. Did all of them go exactly this way that I'm about to show you? No. But it's a best guess. We lost the video footage, so we can't know exactly what it was like, you know, in the first century, in the 60s. But it's reliable history that gives us this actual picture of a Roman triumph. All right. Are you ready? Okay, Caesar... Caesar, you have to be off stage left because Caesar makes an entrance. I'm not sure why Shar's going with him, but we'll leave that alone. Yes. Okay, you're gonna. That's fine. Good. It's a good. It's a good ad lib, Shar. Don't allow Shar to come. Oh. <laughs> okay. Now listen. I know it's fun, okay, but this is serious. So can you guys, it's a serious ceremony that we're about to have, okay? Taylor can't not not smile, I know. Okay. Citizens of Rome, we're all gathered here today at this auspicious occasion by decree of the royal official Roman Senate that Caesar Christus, will be triumphed as Imperator. As you know, he has recently conquered Spain. And so now that he has conquered Spain, he is the King of the Spaniards. And because of his great and glorious victory over Spain, his supernatural feat of winning in battle, you get the idea, he has declared a Roman triumph in order to show and demonstrate the favor of the gods and, in fact, that he is all-powerful ruler and a god. Ladies and gentlemen, imperial guards, citizens of Rome, let me introduce to you Caesar Christus. Okay. Yeah. Stop right there. Now listen. You may not know. Stay right there. You're doing great. You may not know. You may not know. But in first century, especially when it got tough with guys like Domitian, Domitian would have his spies in and around and among you. And if you were yawning, if you weren't, you're going to disappear. I was not kidding. Took this very seriously. This was well known. Now, a couple of things. The ceremony always takes place in the morning. I'll put some things on the list for you to remember when we read Mark 15 in a bit. The ceremony always takes place in the morning. Second, the imperial guard must all be present for such an occasion. Are you all here, imperial guard? Third, as soon as... Now, this is actual history, folks. As soon as Caesar makes his interest, entr entrance, he is given a purple robe and a crown. Here, I'll hold your sign. As soon as he makes his entrance, excellent. Yes, with great, now go ahead and open it up. Now, while they're doing, and he was given a crown. You're doing great, Senator. Get it on your head. Okay. Purple, purple was outlawed. It was illegal for anyone to show any display of purple, it meant royalty, ruler, in charge. Probably in all of Israel, 
the only person for sure that would have been allowed to wear purple was Pilate. Maybe one of the Herods, if Caesar was in a good mood. But it was a crucifiable offense to wear purple. A purple cloth, a purple robe, something that nature. A million dollars, maybe, in our money. It was that hard to find that purple dye. You had to crush like a billion little snails to get this purple, seriously, that they used. So purple says royalty. Now, as soon as he's in his purple... And with the crown on his head, remember, this is an actual Roman triumph, like the ones that would have occurred that people knew in Jesus' day. The imperial guard would all shout their praises, and they would shout. We see this in history among the things common to shout, Hail Caesar. Give me three Hail Caesars, royal guard. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. And if, excellent, if there was a specific reason, for, don't show them that yet. If there was a specific reason for the Roman triumph, as I told you there was today, because he came back victorious over a certain people group, they would add, Hail Caesar, in a way showing that he had in fact conquered whoever, they'd call him king of whoever they conquered, whoever, that, whoever he won for himself. So it would be Hail Caesar, king of the Spaniards, if Caesar Christus has just crushed Spain. So give me three, with all the passion you've got, Hail Caesar, King of the Spaniards. Just go ahead. Imperial Guard. Go. And I won't ask you to do it, but of course you would bow down low to the ground in adulation, if not outright worship. Yes. And you would do it seriously and piously. Okay. Next comes a procession, or today we might say a parade, a formal process through the city streets of Rome. Go ahead. Caesar, no, go ahead, go down there and go through the city streets. Slowly, ceremoniously. Okay, two senators, you're flanking him. The two senators are right behind him, so you're right behind him. And then, go ahead, executioner and sacrificial bolt, you can walk on two feet too. The first bull in the history of the world to walk on two feet. Now, taking, tagging along, tagging along as part of this procession, again, it's real life, tagging along as part of the parade right close to Caesar is a sacrificial bull. And right next to the sacrificial bull is the executioner. And the executioner, the executioner is carrying the instrument of death for the bull, and showing it out, okay? Usually the instrument of death is a double-bladed axe. Last night in my basement I discovered, actually to my great pleasure, that my kids don't have any double-bladed axe toys. But I did find this sword of Narnia, which is appropriate in an ironic sort of way. So, this two-edged sword will have to do. The procession, in, why the bull, by the way? Why was the bull such a revered... Throughout ancient cultures, and even including in Israel, the bull had a special... Why the bull? The bull is and was always... One more time around, guys. The bull is... The bull is and was always the supreme symbol of life. Why? Fertility. Okay? I'll let you make the connection, but something about a bull's desire to be fertile struck the people as especially graphic and especially full of power and life. That desire in a bull was that strong. It became almost a universal symbol for life. In fact, in some of these processions, the bull was so closely linked to life that they would put the purple, on the, uh, purple and a crown on the bull together with Caesar. So there'd be a close nexus between the symbol of life with the purple and crown on the sacrificial animal and the purple and crown on the exalted Caesar, and all of it was mixed up in this sort of mystic God's realm. And so here they would come, parading in formal procession through the city streets. The procession, you'd come on up now, would wind its way through the town where the citizens of Rome would all yell, Hail Caesar, give me one. And finally, the procession would arrive 
And it would always go to the same place in Rome, a place called Capitoline or Capitolium. And I've got to tell you, it's God's prov- providence working through John Burns who has for us this morning the most appropriate place for a Caesar to declare himself God a shopping mall. And I'm not kidding. So appropriate. So, Caesar would end up at a place called Capitolium. Guess what the name of the place means? Capitolium means place of the head. Or even place of the death head. Because according to legend, a perfectly preserved skull had been found there when the Capitolium was built in Rome. Now, immediately before the sacrifice of the bull... Caesar is offered wine mixed with myrrh. But he would refuse to drink it. Yes, I got him! In all seriousness, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, a delicacy. An expensive delicacy. He would ceremoniously refuse to drink it. And it was saved, and it was saved to be poured out over the sacrificial bull. Now, after his refusal to drink the wine, Caesar would be elevated and raised above all the others. He would climb onto a platform. Go ahead, Chris, front and center. And then, get this, two, and it's always two in the historical resources, two people representing the world at large, representing Caesar's authority, someone like two senators, at least according to Caesar, would flank him on either side, one on the right and one on the left, exalting Caesar in the middle. So go ahead, senators. Right there, Pete. Good. Oh, you're going to have a tough time. You've got to go all the way around and then stand right here for me, bud. Excellent. This really happened for Caesar. Then, two more pieces. A sign was there on display, history records, showing why Caesar is to be exalted that day. And often the sign would show Caesar as king of whoever the people he had just come to gather as his own. King of the Spaniards is why we are triumphing Caesar today. Now, with all of that at place, in place, the most important part of the Roman triumph then occurred. The the signal's given. The sacrificial bull is then executed. Okay, good. Okay, good, Danny. The sacrificial bull is then executed, and at that climactic moment of death, at that climactic moment of the death of the sacrificial bull, that was the sign that Caesar, at that moment, when that symbol of life itself was spilling its blood, as soon as that great bull's heart... Stop, Taylor, please. As soon as that great bull's heart stopped beating, at that climactic moment, there'd be a noise and celebration, and Caesar would be declared triumphant. He would be declared God in certain instances, and even some of the Caesars would, at that moment, take on and accept for themselves. It would be proclaimed by the two senators in a loud voice. One of Caesar's favorite titles. You know what it was? Son of God. So at the moment of the de- of death, the two senators, would you please proclaim to all in attendance today that Caesar is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Okay, let's do it together. Ready? Loudly, go ahead. 
And that's a Roman triumph. Would you give our visual aids a round of applause as they quickly find their seats? Good job, guys. A visual aid that you will never forget, yes? Now, with that piece of historical context, with that Roman triumph, like the ones at least that would have occurred and actually occurred fresh in your memory, keeping in mind that Mark's first century readers of his gospel, they know all about the Caesar and his so-called Roman triumph ceremonies. Let's read how Mark tells the crucifixion story and what details he decides to include. Mark 15, verse 16. Let's begin reading. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. And you'd think that'd be enough for Mark to tell us, but he adds a Roman word. That is the praetorium. Guess what the praetorium was? The praetorium was where those at least 200 members of the royal imperial guard all lived. So he doesn't just say palace. He wants us to have a picture of, ah, imperial guard. The soldiers led him into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together, not some, not a few, the whole company of soldiers. How odd for over 200 men to come out to mock and beat a single prisoner. But Mark includes They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put, on his, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. In procession, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. Someone else is carrying the instrument of execution for the victim. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. And Mark tells us what it means. Why? Which means the place of the skull or death head. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he didn't take it. And they crucified him, raised him up. Verse 25, it was the third hour in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And then why tell us this, Mark? They crucified two robbers with him. And Mark even tells us where in relation to Jesus. Curious. One on the one on his right and one on his left. Verse thirty seven. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The sacrificial victim dies in his great heart stops. And at the moment, the climactic moment of how Mark tells the story that the great heart of the sacrificial victim stopped beating. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, a Roman, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, Proclaimed, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Can you believe that? Look at what God did. God seems to have made sure that Jesus' crucifixion and death echoed at least in the minds of the first century along the same lines as a Roman triumph ceremony. And it would seem that our brother Mark noticed too because he takes great care to include specific details that seem to stress the similarities between the two. Look at what they do. God and Mark use a false and pagan practice 
that the devil had fooled people into believing there was power in it. They take that false and pagan practice, turn it on its head to help witness that Jesus, not no stinking Caesar, is in fact the only true and only all-powerful King and God. And just look at the text. In the text, who of all people catches it? A Roman. Of course he would. He's probably seen many such Roman triumphs. And all of a sudden, this crusty executioner sees the comparison, perhaps, and says, quite sincerely it seems, Wow, surely this man was indeed the Son of God. A Roman. Why else would he say this? Scripture tells us in verse 39, He saw how he died. Maybe it also includes that Jesus died with dignity. Maybe it also includes that Jesus gave up his own spirit and died immediately on his own word. Maybe that impacted that Roman. But maybe also, was it because he saw the comparison of the entire morning between Jesus' death and a Roman triumph? And here's Mark's genius. He wants to show that despite Jesus' death, he is Messiah. He wants to show that because Jesus died, He is Messiah. He wants to show that suffering Messiah is not an oxymoron, that the title suffering Messiah does not contradict itself. So what better way than to cast the whole story of Jesus' crucifixion as a Roman triumph of sorts with this key change? He's a brilliant teacher, this author of the Gospel of Mark. He's a brilliant teacher, this God we serve, who inspired Mark to notice and write these words. God took that false, confusing, devil-planted Roman triumph with all these fake Caesar's gods. And he said, you think that makes Caesar great? Let me show you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that sacrificial bull, that symbol of life, and I'm going to take the victim who's to be exalted, and I'm going to make him the same. Show me a Caesar who ever loved that much. It's brilliant teaching. In Mark, Jesus is the suffering Messiah. He's the Messiah because He suffers and dies. Mark opens his Gospel with the statement in the very first verse that Jesus is the Son of God. And then 15 chapters Years and years later, he closes the story of Jesus' death by having a Roman of all people testify to the truth of that fact. Surely this man was the Son of God. One brief application, then I promise I'll let you go. You have to get to Walmart. Many have observed that the first eight chapters in Mark seem to build toward Peter's famous confession right smack dab in the middle of the gospel. It's one one where he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And immediately, you know, as soon as those disciples finally said that, Peter, you are Messiah, Jesus must have gone, oh, at last you guys get it. And as soon as they get it, you are Messiah, Peter says, probably on behalf of them all. And as soon as he makes the confession, look at what Jesus does. Immediately, he begins to teach the disciples, Mark writes, that he must be killed. Suffering Messiah, right smack dab in the middle of the book. Jesus knows he's the suffering Messiah. And now that his disciples have finally got the Messiah part, he needs to teach them that right along with the Messiah part is the suffering and dying part. But while Jesus gets it, Peter obviously doesn't yet. Because as soon as Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying, Mark tells us a startling statement in Mark. A disciple simply did not do this to his rabbi. Peter rebukes his rabbi. You don't do that. But that passion in that man was so great. He believed so much that he was Messiah, he had that same expectation of everyone else. Messiah means victory. And Jesus starts talking, I have to be killed. Stop it, Jesus. Stop this nonsense about you having to die. You're Messiah. He rebukes his rabbi. For his trouble, Jesus rebukes Peter back and says, Get behind me, Satan. I imagine Peter thought twice about ever rebuking Jesus again. 
Here's my point. Peter couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle that Messiah meant suffering and death. He couldn't accept suffering Messiah. He couldn't help but put his hands over his ears and go, la, 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 at that part. He couldn't help but tell Jesus to stop, stop talking nonsense about suffering and dying. Peter, too, had that same expectation that the Messiah comes in power and victory not to suffer and die. Stop it, Jesus. Stop it. Peter couldn't handle it yet. My question for us this morning is, can we handle it? Can we handle that Jesus is the suffering Messiah? Before we too quickly nod our heads yes, remember that because Jesus is the suffering Messiah, we too, in Jesus' own words, must, must take up our cross daily and follow Him. We must suffer for the sake of loving God and loving others too. We must say no to self and yes to God. Can we handle that? Or do we too, in effect, rebuke Jesus as Peter did? Are our ears so full of the health and wealth nonsense out there that we can't handle the self-sacrifice part? Is that why perhaps that gospel seems to be so popular? Stop talking about sacrifice. Ah! If I just hang out with the right people, if I just have the right connections, if I just think holy thoughts, if I just go to church, if I just tithe, if I just, if I just, if I just, if I just, then I'll get, and I'll get, and I'll get, and I'll get, and life will be great. Because God wants me healthy and wealthy and trouble-free all the time. That's the devil's message. We serve a suffering Messiah who says we must take up our cross daily. We must love others with all our heart, all our soul, all our might. We must love others as ourselves. Must. Can we handle that? Or do we rebuke Jesus too? No way, God. I can't accept self-sacrifice for the sake of others. I will only accept success and victory that does not come at great personal cost. Do you hear the devil whisper that into your life? Go ahead. Eat the apple. Doesn't it look good? Ah, no, God said don't, but that was for someone else. He didn't mean that for you because truth is relative. He didn't have you in mind. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. Put self out there. You make the decision on how to live your life. These laws of God. Go ahead. And that apple look good to eat. How could something so loving and that feels so good be bad? God must have had a screw loose that day. Go ahead. Take a bite. We have to go. Matthew emphasizes that the baby in the manger came to teach us by example. He did it. Mark takes the baton and runs further, emphasizing that that example is one of great, total, complete, personal sacrifice out of love to God and others. That's the name that God elevates above every name. The one who did that. Are we ready for that baby this Christmas? Can we handle the selfless call to life and witness that that baby represents? Not on our own. God promises us to give us the strength to handle it when we purpose ourselves and purpose our lives and strain as God gives us the ability, at least in that direction, He'll come right along with us. He won't force us. But when we exhibit a willing heart and spirit and move even an inch, oh, He'll move with you. 
How about we commit and recommit together this Christmas, my friends, to follow Jesus' example and lay it all on the line for God and others. I won't even walk across the street with a pair of tickets to a Christmas concert. And we walk by the 15th Street Mission downtown Denver clutching our $4 venti latte and don't have the time to go inside. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you find Mark today and thank him? Thank him for us, for his amazing story of the passion of your son. And Father, even as the church has long labeled the story of Jesus' suffering and death as his passion, sometimes, Father, we forget that the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry was indeed His passion and that that passion means His suffering out of obedience to You and others. Your Son, Father, said no to self and yes to You and others in the largest way imaginable. And You promise, Your text promises that You are always with us. Jesus Himself promised He would be with us till the end of the age. And also, Father, the Holy Spirit, fully God, three in one Trinity, all are with and in and among us, helping us, Father, ultimately to say no to self and yes to You and others so that the world may know that this baby born in Christmas at Christmas time is not just a baby. He's the righteous teacher who teaches by example. And He's the one who tells us the example that we're to follow as a complete turning over of self to You and to others. Father, we can't do it on our own. You know, Father, I can't even find the time to walk across the street with a Christmas show ticket without You. Please, Father, give us all the strength and the courage to follow through and say no to self and yes to You this Christmas time. Convict in us not only to make the conviction, but to do it this Christmas time, to lay it all, all our heart, all our soul, all our might in love of you. And to love you, Father, first and foremost by loving others, which you have asked us to do. Father, we have prayed all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. See you at Walmart. Your tickets are out there if you want to buy some and step out in faith. If you need prayer, please come down this morning. There are folks that are eager to pray with you. I'll see you at 7 o'clock tonight or Friday, Saturday, and Sunday next week. God bless you. Drive safe. I love you guys.